Hello, I'm Megan Brown, leader of Wiley's cyber team. In this episode of Wiley Connected, we're joined by Tatiana Bolton from the R Street Institute to debate a hot topic in cyber, mandatory cyber incident reporting, pros, cons, and next steps. Recent legislation and agency activity put cyber incident reporting front and center with major impacts expected for the private sector. Is it too much? Is it not enough? Let's get started. You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. So thanks for joining us today for another episode of Wiley Connected. Today, I'm delighted to have Tatiana Bolton to talk with us about mandatory cyber incident reporting, pros, cons, and next steps. Tatiana is currently the policy director for R Street's Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats Team, where she leads policy efforts on data security and data privacy, cyber metrics, critical infrastructure, cyber, and diversity in cybersecurity. Previously, Tatiana worked as the senior policy director for the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission and the cyber policy lead at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or as we have agreed to call it, CISA. CISA. <laughs> I don't know how many times you can say cybersecurity in that. that. That was a lot. That was a lot of cybersecurity. It's a lot right of cybersecurity. So hopefully <laughs> in the future we can, we'll just say cyber. Well, I, that's what I do. Yes. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so we had a little Twitter exchange. This is our first time meeting in person. That's right. And I'm very excited. This is this is how Twitter comes to real life. Exactly. See, and people ask, why are you on Twitter? And yeah, does it make see? a difference? And Sure it does. You know, in, sometimes. In our little and, corner of the world. Right. And then sometimes it turns into ridiculous nonsense. But yes, let's stick to cyber. Yes. So we had a Twitter exchange. Um, Tatiana was talking about incident reporting and I think had sort of called on, you know, let's get the show on the road now that we have this new law and and let's, you know, more information is probably better, get more information to the government. And I, res- I responded that, you know, I, I'm not such a fan of lots of information going to the government and I see some real pitfalls here. So we decided it would be fun to sort of chat about this stuff in person and then make a podcast out of it. So I was going to Sort of overview real quick. There's a lot going on in this space. We're going to be focused, I think, on the incident reporting piece of it and not sort of all the other cyber things that are going on. But just to level set for listeners, we were debating at the outset of the pod whether we should call this new law <laughs> CIRSHA or CIRCIA, which is short-ish, I guess, for the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022. It is Division Y of the recent giant omnibus bill. If you're looking for it online, you can Google it and and I think find it that way. So you've got that. This law that passed uh, was signed by President Biden. It directs the Department of Homeland Security's CISA to create rules implementing this. Um, At the same time, you've got the Securities and Exchange Commission that just put out some proposals for disclosure rules. We have some security directives that came online late last year that require reporting from certain sectors, uh, pipeline and rail, for example. And then you've got sort of the background of, let's call it breach reporting and incident reporting that already exists. Um, So lots going on. We're getting a lot of questions from clients about, am I covered by this? Will I be covered by this? And I think a lot of the answer is, we'll see. Uh, We'll see how the agency does this, right? They have a lot of 
a lot of homework to do in this. Uh, so before we dive into all of that, Tatiana, I was hoping you could just give our listeners a quick introduction, kind of what excites you about cyber? How'd you, how'd you find it? Well, so I came from a national security background. My degree is in national security policy, and I've always uh, focused in that area. Uh, I worked for the DOD, and then after the DOD, I came over to CISA and was immediately thrown into all of the policy that was ongoing, worked on everything from space policy to workforce diversity policy, supply chain security, uh, and and cyber incident reporting, things like that. Uh, and at CISA, and then also through my work at the commission, I came to see a lot of the issues that we had with the previously voluntary reporting structure that we have in the federal government and state and local governments, I guess. I mean, it's not like they're getting a lot more information than the federal government about cyber incidents and the way that we have a very shallow threat picture. We have not a lot of information about what's going on out there. From the federal government point of view, we don't have a lot of insight into what companies are experiencing. We don't even know what critical infrastructure companies are experiencing because they're, you know, sort of part of this very large ecosystem that we have across the United States. And so that's where I I come at it from. I think it's the reason that it's so important is that uh, the majority of our critical infrastructure is owned by the private sector and the voluntary reporting structure wasn't working. And that's why at the commission we argued for or recommended that we have a, a bill that requires reporting to the federal government. I think obviously the rules and what will come out in the next two years, it looks like they have two years to make these, to promulgate rules. We'll see what happens. We'll see how they uh, how they develop everything. But uh, I think this is a big step forward. And I, I really praise Congress uh, for, for getting this passed. Representative Langevin, Senator King, Representative Gallagher have all uh, pushed uh, very hard to get this done on the Hill. And I'm, I'm proud to say I was part of at least a small portion of that at the commission. Well, few things actually make it all the way through the process. Fact. So, um, you know, I, in watching predecessor versions of this bill, certainly this evolved, I think, a lot over time. There was competing approaches that from my personal view, would have been far worse. Uh, so, so we <laughs> the twenty four hour requirement, yeah, and <laughs> potential incidents. I don't think there's much use to reporting on potential incidents, given how that kind of manifests in in companies' real world uh, experiences. And then, before we jump in, can you give me a, give the listeners a sense of what R Street does? I respect the organization quite a bit. I think you guys put out some really cool, interesting stuff. But for the listener who wants to understand what R Street is. So R Street is a nonpartisan, nonpartisan think tank foc- focused on a number of different things, but the tagline is free markets, real solutions. So we focus on, in the cybersecurity realm, like you mentioned at the top, privacy, data security, data privacy. So those concerns absolutely matter to me in the uh, incident reporting landscape. We focus on critical infrastructure security and then workforce diversity uh, because for me, diversity is security. And I'm, you know, from uh, in every organization where I've worked, that is one thing that I've always pushed for. But yeah, we do a number of different things. So it's uh, it's fun. Cool. Well, good. I like following you guys. And I, I think you guys do some interesting stuff. So is CIRCIA, CIA Sersha, is it uh, a good law? Do you, you know, when you saw this pass, I know it was part, it's good to see something happen. But Absolutely. overall, how do you grade it? 
I mean, I think it's a hard question because any law, quite honestly, is only as good as its implementation. And it's very difficult to say um, what will happen. Uh, I think what I, what always happens is the law gets passed. You work on implementation for a few years and then you really see its results only several year, years later. And then that's when, of course, people push for uh, updates to the law. But um, broadly speaking, I think, you know, 72 hours, I think that's, that's a reasonable time frame. It's certainly longer than what uh, the EU or the UK or Australia have, which have, which have also moved to try and update their reporting requirements. Uh, I also, uh, on the critical infrastructure, infrastructure piece, I quite honestly think it should have been broader. I think it shouldn't have just uh, been limited to critical infrastructure entities, although obviously those are the key pieces to our national defense. And so that's absolutely where we should start. The previous versions did have all didn't just say critical infrastructure. They were they went broader. So I was actually a bigger proponent of that. But I think we're going to see in the next two years what CISA defines in terms of the requirements for what to report, how to report. I think um, I think that's to be debated. Uh, but I, the one last thing I'll say is that I, I think that um, the fact that we have identified one entry point into the government for critical infrastructure entities to report incidents and to create a relationship with the government, that uh, the value of that cannot be understated, because throughout the commission, throughout the, our work at the commission. What, and my work at CISA, all of what we heard consistently from critical infrastructure was that they didn't know where to go. They didn't have one singular point of contact or one entity to whom to report. And that sort of created, uh, as they said to us, confusion and an inability or an unwillingness to share and report. Um, so at, at, a, at a minimum, that is good. Yeah, I will say helping companies get through these kinds of situations, I hear that consideration from them that it's tough to know who to go to. I also think there's there has been a real value to you know the FBI as a place to go where you sort of know at least now, right? You sort of know what to expect, you kind of know what the options are and and what that looks like. So I I'm I'm very keen to see how this all shakes out if DOJ's right that this is going to cannibalize that work. I tend to be a skeptic. I think the FBI brings its value. But so I, I hear that. I think, you know, I personally would have, I was wondering during this whole debate, why not just make the CISA 2015 law mandatory? Like if that, if you guys heard on Solarium that that wasn't working, mm-hmm. right? Since that's focused on cyber threat indicators and defensive measures, and we'll get into this in a minute because I think the um, the scope of the information required here is so much broader, you know, why not? Would it have been better to just make CISA 2015 mandatory and say, give us your CTIs and your DMs and we'll go from there? I mean, so I think one of the biggest concerns with what, what CISA 2015 did was provide liability protection to entities that shared information with the federal government. Could that have been a path they could have taken? Sure. I, they could have made that mandatory. I'm certainly more on the side of give more information because he, like – for example, during solar winds, you know, what would they have reported? What would they have reported if the requirements were only were, were limited to, uh, you know, uh, threat indicators? I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they had any, right? Like they, they were only able to see very limited information and it was such a hidden 
uh, well-designed, well-crafted, obviously well-resourced attack, that those types of attacks are going to be hidden in networks. And those are precisely the ones we want to know about. If they're, if they're done by, if they're perpetrated by particularly state actors, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, uh, but particularly the first two, they're only going to be seen sort of later on, usually, if they're successful, right? They're seen uh, after they've sort of been in networks and systems for a while. So gathering more information, such as some of these broader indicators will enable the federal government, perhaps through a full threat picture, to see to to link up tiny breadcrumbs across all of these networks and be able to identify things faster. So do you then have confidence? Because I'll say I, I struggle with whether I have confidence that the government can take in what may end up being such an enormous quantity of information. And this was why I thought the potential coverage of of potential incidents was was sort of silly in my view but do you do you have confidence that DHS given the number of companies that are in critical infrastructure and the kinds of information that will be required can they take that and actually find those breadcrumbs or are they going to lose the next solar winds in kind of all the noise of reporting like this seems like a real operational challenge yeah. i mean so Absolutely, that's a concern. I, I, I will not discount any of that as a as a problem for for CISA right now or DHS more broadly, because absolutely, as it stands, it's still a growing agency. It was only uh, technically stood up uh, in 2018 after NPPD, right? Was there for 10 years before that, but nevertheless, it's early, early, early times, and. I know that there are a lot of people who are concerned about the the staffing, the resources, the processes within the agency to be able to do this, the uh, analytical power, all of that. I get it. However, I think that the the way in which we structure federal programs and policy around such critical uh, areas such as incident reporting and and getting a full threat picture shouldn't be based on existing capabilities of particular agencies today, right? It's not about who sits in the chair. It's about the appropriate place to put this within the federal government, right? A lot of people, for example, argued over the course of the last few years to the commission, to CISA, that DOD should handle a lot of this, right? Should ha- should take over certain aspects because they're more mature, because they have the processes, the people, the resources. But we push back on that because it's not the appropriate place to put these types of authorities because it's a it's a homeland security task. It's it's for domestic systems, uh, and that should not reside in the Department of Defense, right? Which is absolutely focused abroad, right? Appropriately so. So, you know, for me, I I get the concerns, but what I think we should do is take those concerns and act on them by giving more resources and more staff authorities, if necessary, to CISA to be able to do this right. I think they have all the authorities they need, quite honestly. But I think what they do need is resources. They need to staff up their HR. They need to staff up Cyber Central, uh, formerly NKIC, formerly uh, U.S. CERT. Uh, Stop renaming that. (laughs) Uh, CISA. Uh, But, you know, I think we need to we need to go all in. Right. We need to hire the best and brightest. Put them at CISA. Update 
cyber pay make sure that the make sure that we take down the uh the barriers to entry and improve retention rates because the people really are the are the the ones that are doing all of this work and that's really what we're talking about being able to have the manpower and the and the skills to be able to look through this or create systems and and tools and software to actually take in the information and be able to find breadcrumbs in it as opposed to having it be a constant annoying like update reminder that you ignore right we don't want that to happen but i think for me it's about investing into to make sure they do it right as opposed to trying to find other places where we could do it or limiting the scope. I mean, it's all a balancing act, but I, I think they can do it. Yeah. Color me a little skeptical because I saw automated indicator sharing and it felt like there's this is a big challenge. And I think, you know, we'll see. And I think the GAO reports over the next few years will be interesting. I'd, I'd love for this to be different than past um, and, and for that not to be an indicative of future results. But I think we'll see. In terms of the logistics and sort of next steps, kind of what advice do you have to DHS to sort of get this right? Putting aside resources, I'm now thinking, you know, this rulemaking by itself, right? I think they have 24 months to put out a notice. And then it's a little confusing because they have 18 months from the time of the notice Mm -hmm. to finalize the rules. Mm -hmm. So I think it could take up to three and a half years. And it's a lot to bite off. I mean, I practice before regulators who do notice of proposed rulemaking all the time. And when I look at this command from Congress, it's a big job. So uh-huh. kind of what would you advise DHS at this point in in tackling just the rulemaking? Because I look at it and I think, holy smokes, that's it's a lot for staff to do. <laughs> well, it, absolutely it is. I think that uh, if it were me, if I were there, or if I'm recomm- if I'm making recommendations to DHS or CISA right now, I mean, I think that the most important thing is to make sure the interagency is on board and that you're working with all of the right partners, including FBI. Right, pull all of those people in, make sure they're not feeling left out, and that they can then come back at you and and argue that you didn't include them. Right, that's one of the biggest things that the commission did. We talked to over 400, 400 uh, organizations and experts, and I think that's why we got such such support for the for the commission. Rec- recommendations. CISA should do the same thing. They shouldn't be insular. They should get as many experts as they can to try and make this the the best rulemaking they can. They should also have one particular team lead it uh, and and staff that team with your best and brightest. This is one of the biggest things that CISA will do in the next few years. So it should be led by their, you know, their rock stars. Whoever you you have over there, Director Easterly, <laughs> you should put your best people on it. Um, and you should and you should, you know, empower them to be able to make to make recommendations to you about how to do this the right way. They should take their time. They should talk to experts who have done rulemaking before, right? FTC, SEC, uh, all of the work that uh, that Energy and Treasury have done in the cybersecurity space. They have they have expertise in how to work with industry and make sure that their rulemaking is is reasonable. NERC, FERC, right? All of them have experience, and they should and CISA should leverage all of that. They have the connection. And they know who those people are. The government can talk to each other when they want to. So not to you know dismiss the challenges of interagency coordination, but those are the key pieces, right? It's making sure you're bringing in all the right people. You're, the team is led by a qualified team. Um, and so and then I think I think we'll see hopefully very reasonable, uh, very reasonable rulemaking. And that'll that'll make a significant impact to the state of our cybersecurity. Yeah, I'm I. To pick up on the interagency piece, and I think we can talk SEC rulemaking in a little bit, but um, totally agree they need early inputs, and I would sort of foot stomp the private sector inputs on that, right? The NIST cybersecurity framework 
was good and has been held up as such a model. Obviously, NIST is not a regulator, but Mm -hmm. they went out and they got input early on before putting pen to paper on the cybersecurity framework. I'm nervous that DHS might not feel like it has the running room to do that because I think there's some political, there's a desire to move quickly, right? There's a reason earlier drafts of this law had an interim final rule within a very short period of time. But I really think it's important for them to hear from incident responders, companies that are dealing with this, to understand the practical impacts. And then, you know, I will say in reviewing the law, the text of the statute with my colleagues here, some of whom have been former general counsels at regulators, there's a lot of interesting, I'll say, questions here about how much discretion DHS is going to be able to have. DHS, for example, is not an agency that has right now a whole set of procedural rules like uh-huh. the FCC does or Treasury. So I think they have some freedom under the Administrative Procedure Act to kind of shape what they do. And I just hope they take advantage of that to get that early input, right? They might they might hear that you need to to separate out these rules and do sector-specific rules because it strikes me as very challenging to make one set of rules that would identify a significant incident across all 16 sectors. Right? I agree. I think it, it very well may end up being sector-specific um, or at least uh, broken up into, you know, the way in which sometimes people uh, talk about this, the haves and have-nots. Or, um, you know, the mature and the not mature uh, sectors, right? Treasury energy falling into the, the, uh, the former category. And then we've got EPA and, and others. DHS, for, you know, for the record, is actually the sectors, the sector risk management agency, I should say, not sector specific agency, <laughs> the sector risk management agency for uh, a, a large portion of, uh, of the sectors. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, we could see it be, um, we could see it segmented out. Um, I, I mean, it's obviously, it's different for CISA. They have never been a regulator. They've, they, you know, when Chris Krebs was director, he pushed back hard against anything that led CISA to be a regulator because they wanted to lean in on the relationship building between CISA and the, and industry. I think that helped to a point, but I think over the last five years, you saw that voluntary reporting got us very little. You talked about it. You, you talked about the automated indicator sharing, right? The problem with that program wasn't that CISA wasn't trying or that couldn't get it done. It's that the other side, right, from industry sharing with the DHS, there were like six companies that that shared in. And then a lot of people and then they tried to share out, right, what they found. So certainly that program wasn't going to be particularly successful because all they were sharing was uh, information that they had internally plus, you know, six external partners. That's not a full threat picture. So I don't know if I put the blame on that on CISA or, you know, or companies for not sharing. And I get it like general counsels and, and other, you know, lawyers who were representing companies weren't, you know, were giving, were recommending that companies not share information because of liability concerns. But CISA 2015 made that clear that, it, you know, that li- they recovered from liability. It still didn't work. So, I, you know, for me, I'm just, you know, I'm I'm focused on moving moving this forward and, and seeing where we can go from here. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I have a different perspective on why AIS failed. And I know there were sectors who were trying mightily to help and the technical interfaces were not good. And 
you know, I you guess want, both can be true. Right, right. That's they might not be mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive, <laughs> and I think that uh, yeah, I heard the same thing. Right, even DoD and CISA couldn't talk because there wasn't a um, one of the other things I think they should they should do very quickly is create a standard uh, reporting. Uh, mechanism, uh, an easy like online portal or uh, or or form either way that or both that standardizes reporting that's that that's able to cross the different sectors that will have to be standardized because you don't want to have information coming in that's different from all the sectors because then cr- like you can't do cross sector work. And and that's Sis's point. This is his whole thing is that it's it goes cross sector. Yeah. No. And I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting point. It may counsel, and I'm thinking out loud here. It may counsel in favor of really trying to simplify the information that comes in, so you can have uniformity across. Mm-hmm. Because just seeing, you know, the TSA directives, not you know, not a lot of clarity about exactly how the information is is to be ingested, how it's going to be used. But I think. That's going to be a big challenge is if you if the goal really is to have comparable information so you can sort of get a bigger threat picture, you're right, there's going to need to be some consistency, but that may make it very difficult to have really lengthy reporting, right? Because some of the requirements in the statute seem to be a lot of qualitative stuff, like describe the function of this, of a system or device that was attacked. And that may vary dramatically, Right. So it'll be really – I think it'll be really interesting to see what forms they come up with and how that yeah. goes. Well, and I think – I mean, like when you're talking about the some of the qualitative descriptors, what kinds of systems, what, you know, what um, what did you see? What I think those types of things – and I don't want to get too far in the weeds <laughs> here, but like – because obviously this is what CIS is going to be doing. But like there's ways that you can do drop-down menus, right, mm-hmm. or like have om- like a, you know, uh, um, bubble answers, you know, like the, the little – you know, Scantron type answers, right? Where it's not just like fill in the blank and then there's spelling errors or whatever. And that, uh, no joke, no joke, spelling errors and incorrect inputs, right? Not only have caused like cybersecurity incidents, but also can can block the uh, integration of data. Uh, Coders know this, that like if you put in the wrong information, if you misspell something, it can absolutely mess up the entire functioning of the of the program. So you um, you need to they need to consider that they need to consider which part you know which which fields are required, which aren't, and like the the development of that I think should be done with an eye towards simplicity and but um, but sort of making sure they get the right information and it, they can do top section required optional reporting at the bottom, right? Like you can do a whole, you know, you can attach whatever addendum you want, right? And if they want to talk to you about the that addendum portion or that's particularly uh, useful, right? That's great. Uh, and that's where I think some of that additional information might be useful. But at a minimum, I think, you know, the top part, the, whatever the required section is, needs to be um, standardized across sectors. Interesting. I hope they talk to some of the regulators who already have those kinds of portals because mm-hmm. I will say at the Federal Communications Commission, they have standardized reporting for CPNI breaches mm-hmm. and the dropdowns are sometimes a little obsolete, right? There's questions that were relevant 12 years ago or right. whatever. So I think there's a, there's a, they right. really need to, you know, vacuum up a lot of information about how this works in right. other places that have dipped their toe in this water. I mean, it makes sense to think about uh, the 
it's almost like the acquisition life cycle, right? It's not just the the setting the requirements, buying it, putting it in place. It's also the maintenance and operations, and then the uh, the the closing out or the termination of any contract or acquisition. Same here. If you're developing a program, you need to think about how you're going to maintain it, how you're going to update those fields, how you're going to keep up to date with uh, whatever. How what's the um, uh, what's the rhythm with which you will uh, with update. So I think all of that needs to be done. But I think CISA has qualified people who can absolutely think through all of these things and do this right. Better than me. I kind of wish they had started with a pilot program of some sort (laughs) to test drive this and sort of work the kinks out instead of jumping to this broad almost whole of economy kind of approach. But you know, but think but like how many times can Congress get something big like this done? If the something big isn't great, then maybe they should. I just, I, but I do, but I like it. So I, you know, maybe we're in different shoes, but like, you know, this is something that we've thought about for a long time. It's not like this came out of nowhere, right? Like this has been talked about for a long time. CIS has been talking about it, has been trying to get, I mean, Jeanette Manfra wanted to get this done. The commission recommended it. Like we thought through it. We talked to a lot of different, uh, 400 plus different entities. And we didn't get a lot of pushback on this, right? Like there's different, differing perspectives on how much to report or who should be included. But broadly speaking, people agreed that the voluntary program was not working. Um, I'm not going to say everybody agreed, but I I think that um, if we can – We've seen a lot of progress, I'll say. We've seen a lot of progress over the course of the last few years on cyber. And I think uh, part of that is uh, what happened in Congress because of uh, SolarWinds, Colonial Pipeline, uh, Microsoft Exchange hack, like all of those really brought cyber into the public consciousness. So I don't really blame, you know, I, can you blame us for trying to get all this through while that's, at, you know, in the public eye? Right? I can't blame you for trying. What I wish, what I can blame is I wish Congress would have actually held some hearings on this language because the statute, and with all due respect, and the, the folks who worked on it in Congress, I know worked really hard and it was, it was hard fought to get something done. But I think there's there's going to be some pains over at DHS in implementing this in a in a way that complies with the APA and that respects congressional intent um, and the language used sometimes, of, which is very specific, perhaps unfortunately. So, um, so one last thing that'll that'll transition us to the SEC stuff, and we may need to revisit some of these issues in a future pod. But a lot of folks are concerned that there's going to be so much overlap in what DHS has done or is being told to do here. There's a lot of reporting obligations that already exist that may be similar to this. Elements are very similar. The timelines may be different. I would have liked to have seen actual mandates in the law to deconflict and harmonize. I was underwhelmed by the council approach because I don't think it has a lot of teeth. And shortly after this, you see the FCC chairwoman reconstituting an interagency that seems quite duplicative or, or similar to the council that Congress wants. So... What what are your thoughts about this overlap concern that I'm hearing from lots of folks in the private sector that DHS really needs to take a breath and try and not add but find the the gaps that that we have or, or how, how are we thinking about this the wrong way? No, uh, 100%. The deconfliction portion of this is absolutely one of the very first steps that says it needs to do. I mean, um, we were talking I was talking before about interagency cooperation. 
This is a big portion of that because it's not just getting their expertise on how to f- how to structure the new program. It's also about what do you already have and let me not do, you know, let me not try and collect what you're trying to collect or let me make sure that we've got the same fields that you have plus some additional ones or something like that, right? There's a lot of different things. There's HIPAA, GLBA. There's SEC requirements, FERC, NERC. We don't need to go through all of them, but all the, the acronyms, all the, the ac- whole just, just dang all alphabet. The, just like throw in any letter and just they TSA, have some DOD, cyber, FCC, all, all the fun. So they all have requirements. That a lot of them have uh, reporting requirements for particular things. They don't necessarily have them for incidents. They might have them for changes for software updates or something else. Like it's absolutely critical that says a make sure that they coordinate. Some of the biggest issues, for example, are in terms of timelines, right? Like 72 hours versus 24 hours versus 60 days for reporting of a data breach to your uh, to the actual data breach victims. How are we going to deconflict that? That absolutely ties into the new SEC rulemaking that's out right now that they're trying to making making that right. I I think it's very important the the deconflicting piece is is critical. They also, let me just point out, we've also got the European Union who are considering changes to their network and information systems regulations. They are uh, the United Kingdom, which is updating all of their uh, cyber incident reporting requirements. We've got Australia who um, who implemented a new cyber reporting program earlier this month known as the Security Legislation Amendment uh, Critical Infrastructure Act of 2021. I mean, all the fun acronyms. Well, just, and one, one thing here that I noticed when I was trying to figure out, I wanted to get a back of the envelope number of how many companies are actually in critical infrastructure here. Cause ah. I, I pity the person. You need cyber metrics for that, Megan, and we don't have that. Well, so hashtag BCS. <laughs> I was trying to say, you're going to have to do a cost-benefit analysis, DHS. So how are you going to like sort of spitball how many companies are actually going to be in here? And it was interesting because we have 16 critical infrastructure sectors. I think Canada has 10. It varies around the world. Uh-huh. So all of this just adds more complexity. I'm not yeah. ready to suggest that they need to harmonize globally, but I think that's something that they're going to have to think about. I mean, but, you know, CISA works internationally with all of its partners, and I think some of the best work is done when we are taking uh, best practices from our partners and then are also exporting our best practices to them, right, because the Internet is not limited to our borders. So (laughs) can you believe it? Megan. News breaking. News breaking news. (laughs) The Internet is not something that um, stops at the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean. Crazy. But um, my point is that, like, I, I agree. Like, you're not going to be able to deconflict everything internationally. We can't even, you know, do that with, like, privacy re- regulations or or any other thing that we're doing. But it's good to talk to them. They can give us good ideas. There's nothing wrong with, with asking more questions and, and talking to more people, right? They could possibly give us some experience and some ideas from what they've done and their lessons learned. I mean, that's definitely possible. Um, but, you know, in – Domestically, at a, at a minimum, like it's 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 a complicated puzzle, right? To put together 
a reasonable requirement because I, I think – I mean at a, at a minimum, this all needs to be reasonable and focused on national security. So for our national security, what is reasonable for us to require of companies to do in what given period of time and how do we make this as the least burdensome we can? Because the worst thing that can happen is to make this a compliance thing. If people feel like it's a check in the box and it's just another form they have to fill out when something happens and it's a pile of other forms, that is the, that will spell the death knell of this program. We need to make sure that people see this as a way to communicate with the government to start a conversation on how to protect our networks and systems. We need to make sure that they talk to the SEC as the SEC rulemaking is happening right now and and incorporate their recommendations before that is finalized. Well, candidly, I, I think the SEC should hit the pause button on their rulemaking because it seems to be swimming in the precise opposite direction as Congress said that the federal government should go, which is national security focused, confidential, protected reporting so that the government can try and see what's going on. I am a huge skeptic of the SEC's approach here that within you know four days of a materiality determination, go to market with a bunch of information that may not be quite right at that time. I mean, there's a reason companies schedule and and do their cadence with 8Ks and the like, because the, to me, the worst thing is for bad information to go to market. So I'm, I really wish the SEC would rethink this, particularly in light of C-I-R-C-I-A, mm. <laughs> Sertia. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, you know, I, I can be uh, convinced possibly on that. I mean, I think that and we're actually submitting comments to this. So you're, you know, you're talking to a person who's going to submit some comments over here. Big, big news. There big, you go. Yeah, see, it's coming out. <laughs> um, but, you know, as we were thinking about what we were going to put in there and as we were reading through the, the rulemaking, that's absolutely something that came up in my mind immediately. Um, it's, it does go against the concept that if you were reporting uh, breaches. It's confidential and we're just trying to get a national threat picture, right? That's absolutely what CIS is trying to do. Now, on the financial regulatory side, that's not what they're trying to do, right? That's not their role. Their role is not national security. So I can't blame them for for dealing with, uh, you know, financial regulations as they see fit. I'm not a financial regulator, nor do, do I work in that sector. Um, so I can't speak to like what they need and what the right appropriate um, uh, path is for financial regulation. Um, but I can speak to the cybersecurity aspect of it. And uh, and that's what we're going to be putting in those comments. Uh, the one thing I will say is that um, from a high level, it's important that we change the culture around cybersecurity breach in the country. We have this tendency to keep – um, to keep breaches secret, like keep it secret, keep it safe, you know, like keep it close to the vest. Don't tell anyone. Everyone knows you got breached already because everyone's getting breached every day. Like literally, like w the last time you had a conversation about like a cybersecurity breach, did someone sitting at the table across from you say, <gasps> what? There was a breach? Really? What happens is that people are like, oh, really? Who? Oh, okay, whatever. Anyway, we were talking about this martini that we were drinking. It's delicious. What's the gin in that? Right? Like literally people already don't think that it's that big a deal. So I don't understand why we're keeping it so secret. Like what, like to the, to the extent that the SEC rulemaking can promote a culture of openness and discussion 
around cybersecurity incidents, I think that is a benefit because it will help us all work together because all of the networks are interconnected. And it's not like – and all of the all of the attackers are attacking not just one company. They're attacking multiple companies. So, you know, again, I don't know what – like their goal is obviously to um, inform investors about breaches in order to make determinations about investment into the, a particular company. But from the national security standpoint, it's all about – What's happening in the world? What? Who are the threat actors? What are they going after? How do we see that that's what they're doing? And then how do we protect our networks? How do we make ourselves more resilient? And by creating a, a culture that understands that people will get breached, that com- it, that is completely typical for breaches to happen, it'll ha- it'll move our conversation away from oh gosh, did you get breached? To how do we build a more resilient ecosystem? And what do we? What's the next steps to take? What's the what's the most common threat vector? What's the most common mistake people make? Let's fix those. And that's what CIS is trying to do. And I think that I think that to the extent that we can move towards that culture, it'll be better. I have I I agree with with almost all of that. I think the culture of victim blaming has a lot to do with the reticence. One, I'm not even going to get into all the litigation and lawsuits and stuff because, right. you know, I think you you know where I'm coming from on that. I'm not a fan. Um, I would get rid of all the class action data breach stuff. I think it's not super helpful to actually improve security. But the, you know, when I look, for example, though, at, you know, the CEO of Colonial Pipeline, he went up to the hill and he got roasted for talking to the FBI and not DHS. And I've had clients who've gotten screamed at for various things they've done or not done, all with the benefit of 2020 hindsight after something bad happens. It's very easy to Monday morning quarterback a situation, whether it's did you did you deploy the right security, you know, did you did you have the right prioritization? You know, so I think that's part of the problem is this it's it sounds great, but I think a lot of folks in Congress and otherwise really like to hammer the victim company. And we forget those companies are just as much a victim, probably more so, than the folks whose data gets popped in a breach, right? Like like my stuff with OPM, right? Um, the government does not particularly do a good job either on some of this stuff. So I think to change the culture, we would need to really sort of a change how we talk about victim companies and not be so quick on the Hill and otherwise to cast aspersions and blame and mock and and sort of play that fun game of look at all the the things that this company did or did not do. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I I think that um uh I think that the hill should not necessarily go and and hammer a particular company. Now, if there's willful or egregious conduct, right? If if it's, you know, sort of beyond the pale, then maybe you have something to talk about. But I think like when solar winds got breached, you couldn't have possibly prevented that. That was a that was a that was an APT that was always going to get in, right? That is well resourced to the to an extent that you can't possibly defend against, right? And that's why I think that you know, uh, in the commission, for example, we recommended um, safe harbor provisions for SICKI entities, uh, systemically important critical infrastructure, right? If you if you can show that you've been doing the right thing, 
then then we can't expect you to um, we can't expect you to defend against every single breach that's out there, right? Um, but we can, but but that's what you know the the part that we'd like the companies to do, right? Is get to some of these minimum standards, right? Get to some level of maturity that provides a stronger ecosystem for all, right? Do your patching. Set two-factor authentication. Require training for your employees and not like crap training from like PowerPoints, right? Like do legitimate – do the do the legitimate steps to show that you are trying to protect your networks. Put money into cybersecurity, right? We still don't see that much happening in all companies. Some companies do great. I'm not going to – like JP Morgan – I mean, not like I'm shilling for J.P. Morgan here, but like they spend something like the, like the I don't know, the GDP of some small nations on cybersecurity. So like they have very strong cybersecurity. There's others out there that do absolutely nothing and, and are surprised if they get hacked. Right. Like so, you know, there's right now we're still in the early stages. Right. Like cybersecurity is not um, as mature as like the defense industrial base and and how uh, secure it is or how how we've figured out physical security right um we've we're only starting to get it done and so some are moving faster than others the goal of the the um you know of the recommendations of the commission that that I worked on right or that we worked on was to get everybody like to you know, rising tide lifts all boats we want to make sure that everybody is doing the right things. And then when you are doing the right things, you're not hit yeah. you know, either by cyber attacks or by the hell. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, I've been counseling clients in this space for over 10 or 12 years now. And it has been dramatic to see, you know, when I first started worrying about cyber and things were moving on the hill, I felt like I was evangelizing to certain clients that like this is a thing. Some of my clients were very forward leaning. But now I feel like, you know, in the past, I would say almost, you know, five or six years, I've seen a real change in companies wanting to be proactive. Sometimes they don't really know what that means, right? Do I need to, do I need a gap assessment? Do I need this? Is 853 what I should look at, right? I think there's a challenge there. Um, but I have seen a change in the, 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 the willingness to be proactive and make these investments. And I think one of the big areas that I wish the government would focus a bit more on candidly, then requiring companies to do incident reporting, for example, is how do you help the smaller and mid-sized companies that don't have a CISO, they, they're not going to be able to afford it, or that don't know where to go? I feel like that's kind of an underserved thing from my view and experience. The bigger companies, they have their act together. The incentives are pretty aligned, mm-hmm. you know. So I kind of wish, you know, we would we would look at this maybe, to me, incident reporting feels very backward looking. It's an additional compliance burden. And I'd rather say, let's help the, let's help, as you said, get the defenses of certain chunks of our economy up to a better place. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I disagree that it's backward looking because quite honestly, right now we don't have a full threat picture. So uh, say what you will, but like the, that is a, that is something we need. We still need, we don't have that. We don't have a full threat picture, and that's what this will get us. But um, I agree with you on the small business side. Small and medium-sized businesses are absolutely um, underserved. Uh, They're uh, under-resourced. They uh, don't focus on cybersecurity as much because they can't. They they don't have the resources or staff, like you said. State and locals, same. Yeah. Um, And state and locals uh, got $1 billion uh, last year. 
that CISA currently is uh, trying to get out there to them to make sure that they're investing in cybersecurity. That is going to be a huge help. And CISA has efforts for small businesses. They have a team that works with uh, with small business, small medium-sized businesses. They have the Small Business Toolkit. Mm-hmm. There are tools out there. The recommendations we made at the commission, for example, include like moving small businesses to the cloud and using cybersecurity as a service providers instead of trying to develop your own cybersecurity standards or tools and software using a a large provider that that. Uh, where your tools, your email service comes with cybersecurity built in, right? That is, uh, I think, the fastest way to get small and medium-sized businesses to to a place of security. And so what we need is just, uh, you know, stronger uptake of that, right? Like bigger uptake, uh, more people being able to access those those toolkits uh, and those uh, those resources. But certainly, you know, a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. Obviously, we can keep talking about these issues for like days. We could just so keep true. going. So maybe you'll you'll be kind enough to come back sometime. Maybe sure. When the, maybe when the rules are fun. out or something. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to give you the last word since this started out as sort of a, a the, the germ of the idea was a little bit of a debate. I am still very anti the mandatory incident reporting framework, but I want you to have the last word. And I thought I would ask you kind of, is there something that you're optimistic about? Because I feel like these cyber discussions the policy folks, the the smart sp- cyber practitioners that I see out there, there's a lot of negativity. Like it's a cynical kind of thing. And are you optimistic about something? I'm optimistic about all of it, quite honestly. I mean, if you take a look at um, where we were when CISA 2015 was passed that, that provided liability protections for companies, and that was not as successful as many hoped, then we had CISA stood up in 2018, right, as a real agency. From that point, and it was under a billion dollars. Now it's, uh, you know, appropriated around 2.5 billion, not a few years later. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, was stood up and, uh, produced a report within a year and a half under budget, may I add. <laughs> the, and within its time frame. So, you know, say what you will of commissions, but we managed to do it. Yeah. You guys did a lot. I, I we can have this whole separate discussion about which <laughs> of those things, <laughs> but anyway, continue. But, um, we had all that. The report came out. 25 of those recommendations got implemented into the 2020 NDAA. That was a huge step. But obviously, uh, that coincided with the solar winds breach and colonial pipeline and the, and cybersecurity became part of the national consciousness and people started to really understand what, what these, um, breaches could do to their daily lives, cause lines at the gas pump and, you know, turn off networks or, for example, what, you know, um, this wasn't a cyber breach, but, you know, what happened in Texas where the, the electrical grid went offline, right, for days. And the point was cyber could also do that, guys. So, you know, I think we, between all of these different changes, the 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 investment into CISA, the action on the Hill, which, by the way, remains nonpartisan, which is excellent. All of this, I think, is, and then we got national breach reporting. I think all, which to me is a big step. I think we're moving towards a, a full threat picture. We're moving towards stronger resilience. We're improving some of the ecosystem pieces. We're securing our sectors. We're making sure that we're focused on risk, right? We're sector risk management agencies instead of sector-specific agencies, setting up a five-year risk management plan at CISA, uh, identifying national critical functions as what CISA is doing right now under the NRMC. 
all of that work. There's, there's been so many people that have been moving uh, forward on this. And plus what you were saying about industry. Ten years ago, people were like, what? Do I have to invest in cyber? Maybe not. But now they are. And so I'm optimistic about all of it. I think that we can, in 10 years, I think we're going to look back and see this as the critical time in cybersecurity where we were able to take a look at the biggest issues and tackle them head on. I'm optimistic about what's going to happen over the course of the next few years. Well, great. I'd love to end on an optimistic, happy note. Uh, Thank you again, Tatiana, for joining us. And uh, tune in for our next episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected Podcast, brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.